Okay, so we got one guy in here. I know that there's a lot of people that have been watching these um, outside of here. I know last week, last time we did this, I wasn't around. Um, I know Jake Berlingame, who's our director of baseball ops, um, took the lead on it and talked a little bit about offensive scheme and some things that we can do offensively, um, you know, when it comes to actually running different, um, you know, things throughout the course of the game and how to actually develop guys as much as we can throughout our practices, because I know with those practices, we're limited. Um, and I know as tryouts kind of get a little bit closer, those are the things that, um, you know, you guys are limited to, and, and we only have a few weeks before a game starts. So it's really, really important uh, to try and get as much offensive production as we can and really get the team to understand exactly what we're trying to do offensively. Um, and the other big piece I know they talked about was understanding who our team is, what our team is, you know, what type of style of baseball we're going to have to play that year. And then as coaches being adjustable to that, um, you know, we have to remember that some years we're going to have speed guys, some years we're going to have, um, you know, some power guys, some years we're going to have a mix of both. Some years we're not going to have a good offensive team and some years we're going to have great offensive teams. So it's really important to understand those things. And I know that, that was discussed last week. So anybody that's listening here again, um, whether it's through, you know, podcast next week or uh, through YouTube, just remember that week three is now on YouTube and through podcast. And you guys can hear a lot of what Jake had to talk about offensively, which, um, you know, directly aligns with exactly what, you know, our philosophies are. So um, to get started a little bit today, I'm going to go really deep into the defensive side of the ball. I'm going to go really deep into understanding defensive schemes, you know, how we can um, get outs, how we can save outs, how we can understand exactly what, you know, we're looking to accomplish on the defensive side of the ball and, and try to develop some sort of plan um, as to what we're trying to accomplish. So I'm going to share my screen very quickly here um, just to actually give whoever's watching a, a visual to this just so that you guys can actually see, um, you know, what we're trying to do. So. This exact, um, this exact presentation here is in the Dugout Coalition Coaches Certification. Um, so bear with me as I get it popped up here. So that little DC logo in the corner is Dugout Coalition, which is our um, you know, online coaches training certification process that we use. Um, so I wanna start right where if the ball isn't hit to me, why do I need to move? So I'm gonna get right into the defensive side um, and talk a little bit why have, making sure that our backups are in position is very important. So number one, backups are never praised, but often needed. So, you know, for a lot of coaches, that's very self-explanatory. Um, you know, but we also do have to understand that we can try and praise our backups, but the majority of it is going to be that we want to make sure that they understand this is just part of their job. So their job is to um, backup plays, whether we praise them or not, and understanding that this is actually part of the game that's going to help us save runs, um, it's going to help us get outs. It's going to help us add outs. We make a mistake, you know, things like that. So um, from an infield perspective, you know, we always want to back up bunt plays. We always want to back up a throw back to the pitcher. Uh, we always want to back up, you know, a, a throw down to second base, depending on, uh, you know, if somebody's stealing, um, you know, we always want to back up a back pick to first base if we're a second baseman and vice versa on the left-hand side of the field. You know, so it's definitely very, very important to make sure that the backups understand where they need to be. Um, a team with all players moving on a play is very intimidating to the opponent. So that, that basically that's, that holds very true. So a team with players moving means that they know what they're doing defensively and they have confidence in where they're supposed to be. Uh, and that goes, you know, to every single level of baseball, whether it's youth travel, high school, um, college professional, even the major leagues, um, in the major leagues, it's kind of boring sometimes to watch because they're actually in position always. Um, they're actually perfectly in position the majority of the time, and they do it very simply. Um, but that filters down into high school of just being in a place and moving no matter what. So 
for example, um, you know, why would a right fielder have to move in towards the infield if there's an if there's a throw down back pick to third base? Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't have to go anywhere. Well, what if there was a guy on first and third and there was a back pick to third base? The third baseman turns around and chucks to second base on a guy stealing or delay stealing and throws it into right field. Those are situations where guys need to move for sure. So getting in the habit of always moving, I think, is very important um, and allows for our defense to understand that it's going to keep them super engaged in the game for sure. Um, and it's also going to have them in a place where they can actually make outs if we make a mistake. Uh, the third one's holding runners from advancing can save free bases, which can change the game for sure. So guy on first base, um, you know, making sure that he doesn't steal and force the other team to put a bunt down to get an out. Um, you know, save some free bases as much as you can. So picking guys off or trying to pick guys off, um, you know, making sure that we're back picking guys. If we get a throw in from the outfield or, or faking the back pick, um, you know, making sure that we're always looking for the next play to be able to hold runners on and keep them back, I think is extremely important. And then stealing outs can occur if the, if we're positioned properly. So, and I, like I mentioned before, overthrow happens where, you know, guy stealing third base and a catcher overthrows a third baseman, um, you know, shortstop or left fielders in position to catch the backup throw. The guy jumps up without watching his coach runs home. Our shortstop or left fielder can throw him out at the plate. Um, you know, so we made a mistake, but we got an out out of it. Uh, there's a lot of different scenarios in the game that can happen. This is just one of them. Uh, but I know it's very, very important for us to obviously be able to actually move and make sure we're in position. Um, you know, so I, I think that that's very, very, very important. I want to go into, um, you know, a little bit of the, the goals on defense mentally. I think that's really super important. I, I think a lot of times the reason why a lot of kids don't try out for baseball or a lot of people are, are not watching baseball is because of the, of the time and how boring a lot of people say that it is. Um, I think it's really important to understand kind of, you know, what our goals are and, and what are some of the numbers that actually line up to tell us how, how fast or slow the game is. Um, you know, so there's a lot of time in between pitches. And I think as coaches, I think our biggest goal is to make sure that we allow our infielders and outfielders to know and think about what they're going to do with the ball when it's hit to them prior to the play happening. Um, you know, so for example, I played shortstop. And the one thing that I always talked about and thought about was, if the ball's hit to me, where am I going? If the ball's hit to my backhand, my forehand, straight at me, slow roller, pop up, what am I doing? And I had a lot of time in between pitches to be able to do that. Um, and I think those are things that are programmed in my head and were programmed in my head that I used. And, and I also think it's a very, very important piece for, you know, a lot of a lot of players that in between pitches, they don't really think. They kind of just use that as time to take off. Um, and I think it's really important to understand what we're trying to accomplish in between those, you know, in between pitches. So know what we're going to do with the ball prior to the ball being hit. As I mentioned, uh, the average time between pitches in the major leagues is 21.5 seconds. Um, that may go down. It may go up, obviously, but that's the average right now. So I got 20 seconds in between pitches to figure out exactly what I'm doing if the ball's hit to me in a certain scenario. Um, you know, a quick scenario for this is I'm playing short runner on first base with one out. Um, a really, really fast runner um, at first base and a really slow runner at the plate. So if you get, if you can think about that scenario of me playing short, if the ball's hit directly at me or to my left, 
um, on a directly hit ball, very hard hit ball. I can turn a double play, um, a hard hit ball to my backhand. I'm still probably turning the double play, but a slow hit ball to my backhand, I'm probably only going to be able to get the out at first base because the guy running from first to second is really fast. Um, so understanding exactly where I'm going with the ball, I think is very important. And then on top of that, making sure that we're not compounding mistakes or making mistakes. Um, you know, so that slow hit ball to my backhand, if I turn and throw to second base and rush myself because I've auto programmed myself with a guy in first base to throw to second, we may end up getting zero outs rather than getting one out in a situation where we, you know, had an opportunity to get two, um, you know, but we need to at least obviously take care of the one. So um, it, it gives you time to consider potential situations before they occur. So those 20 seconds in between pitches gives you time to actually figure out exactly what you're going to do. So that's kind of the preparation that it takes to be successful uh, or a lot of hitters in the, or a lot of position players um, when they don't take that time and the ball's hits them, they hesitate or they rush um, and make kind of impulsive decisions rather than making, you know, decisions that they've actually thought out that they kind of foresee happening in the future that that does finally come to them and they're not ready for it. So uh, the second piece to this is, do not hesitate with throws and or positioning after the ball is hit. Um, being wrong in positioning without hesitation is still better than doing nothing. So if you decide, if you watch a swing as a shortstop and decide to take, you know, two steps to your left or two steps to your right, and the ball ends up being hit in the opposite direction, you know, just out of reach, you made a decision that you wanted to move based on the situation that you saw. And that is what it is. And that's okay. Um, and don't hesitate with your throws. You know, if you do the preparation prior to the pitch being thrown um, and the ball does get hit to you, don't hesitate. Make the throw, make your decision, trust that decision. Um, and those are things that you can obviously learn if you make a mistake in the future. But I think the two biggest things to take out of this mental piece is prepare, understand exactly what you're trying to do prior. Um, and then the second piece to that is don't hesitate. Once you actually get the ball hit to you, and, and you finally are ready to, you know, you, you understand what decision needs to be made, make it. Um, and then the third thing mentally is, is confidently communicating and executing and all relay and cutoff situations properly. And this can apply to every type of communication. Um, you know, I tend to be an over communicator when it comes to playing the game. I would rather over communicate and over talk to make sure that everybody knows what I'm trying to do, um, you know, rather than trying to go back into it and basically say, um, you know, oh, I didn't talk to you. I'm sorry. You know, we made a mistake. So we want to overly talk. We want to make sure that we're executing on those things and, and really explain exactly what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to do. Um, so I think it's really, really important to as infielders and outfielders is to overly communicate with our you know, teammates that are right next to us, but also the people in front of us and behind us. Common ways we fail. Okay, perfect. So this is really awesome. And this is definitely something that fully applies to coaching high school baseball. So I think this would definitely, you know, as coaches, this is our biggest challenge um, with our athletes, but something that we can always, uh, you know, obviously work on with our kids. So poor attitudes. It's understanding the mental side of the game and, and when they make a mistake or um, you know, let's say they make an error on defense. A lot of those athletes will bring those, those, you know, defensive mistakes to home plate. So what type of process as coaches are you trying to get across to your athletes that are allowing them to actually make the right decisions um, on being able to get rid of, you know, something negatively that happened in the past? Um, you know, one thing that we talk about with a lot of our athletes is baseball is a sport that you're supposed to fail. You're supposed to make mistakes. You're supposed to be bad at it. It's part of playing the game. 
Um, you know, so instead of getting frustrated by the mistake, we learn from this mistake so that we can try and limit those mistakes in the future. Um, and those are things that we see often, you know, as a college recruiter, which I was in the past, and, and I would go watch high school games. That was the biggest telltale whether I was going to try and sign a kid or not was how did he or she uh, react whenever they made a mistake? Um, you know, was that athlete mature enough that they could strike out in front of a couple college coaches and have enough composure to make a good play on defense the next inning? Um, you know, did they have a good attitude to be a really good teammate when they weren't performing at their highest level? Those are all things that really, really matter in the game and can help keep a really good team culture. Um, you know, I think those are things that, you know, we see more often than not of, of having poor attitudes. Those are the same guys that, you know, if they, if they are the best player on the team and they have a bad attitude, they might have to sit. Depends on what kind of culture you're trying to create. Um, I know for, for me, my personal thought is no one's bigger than the team. So whether you're the best player on the team or the worst player on the team, depending on your attitude, um, you know, will, de will determine how much of that leash I have, you know, when you're playing. If, if you are a really good teammate, you're probably going to get more opportunities to play than if you're a bad teammate or if you have a bad attitude because, you know, we want to make sure the culture is high. So the second piece to this is communication. Um, a lot of times, especially with high school kids, they struggle with the communication aspect of the game because they think that they're going to be wrong um, or they're hesitant on what, you know, they should be communicating. So I think as coaches, it's very important for us to actually teach them what we should be communicating in certain situations. Um, you know, for example, if I have an athlete that's playing shortstop for the first time and, you know, he doesn't really know what to say to the rest of the infield and we want to teach him that it's okay to be wrong, but communication is a more important piece so that teammates can talk back and forth with each other to actually figure out exactly what the right step is and what the right move is, um, you know, rather than them not saying anything and not knowing what to do. So that's another big reason why teams defensively will fail is because they're not talking to each other to figure out, you know, what the next play is. Um, poor knowledge. So I think it's very important to understand that we have high school athletes that don't know everything about the game. They don't know as much as us, as we do as coaches. Um, you know, so it's very important to, to try and implement some of the baseball IQ stuff in there. If you guys that are listening to this are interested in, you know, the baseball IQ exam that we have and that we offer with dugout coalition, um, you know, let me know and I can reach out to those guys and see if they'll send you guys some baseball IQ stuff. We have a lot of college coaches that are now, um, you know, take using our baseball IQ test to actually train or see where recruits are um, fundamentally when it comes to baseball IQ. But I think it's, it's knowledge of understanding what your team playbook is. So what plays have the coaches given to the athletes and do they know them? Um, and then number two, like, where's the baseball instinct at? So how much have you been around the game, watched the game, played the game to understand the situations that are going to come up? Um, but that's another reason why, you know, athletes fail is because they have a lack of knowledge of what they're trying to do. And the last piece, um, you know, which is always going to be an issue is, is poor execution. Um, so knowing situations a lot of times isn't enough. It's being able to execute the plays and situations without making mistakes. For example, um, you know, for any coach that's in here listening to this, if, if you have, you know, a group of kids that you, you taught three bunt plays to, um, and every single guy on the team knows exactly what the bun play is and knows exactly how to run it and how to do it. And then they, they can't execute on that. Then it's going to be very difficult, obviously, to be able to use those plays in games because we don't want to compound mistakes. 
Um, so execution on top of knowledge is very important. So we have to know exactly what we're trying to accomplish. We have to communicate that with the rest of our team. We've got to execute that. And then if we make a mistake, we've got to make sure that we keep our head up. So that's kind of how that ties all four of those in together. Um, but we see it more often than not overall throughout the course of the game where, you know, we lack attitude, um, you know, attitude is very important. We lack communication, knowledge, and execution of those things. So I think the more we practice, the more we teach, and the more we talk, I think that's going to allow us to be more successful as coaches, you know, all over the game, but, you know, more importantly, even on the defensive side of the ball. All right, let's get back to some defensive stuff. Proper defensive pre-play communication. Okay, so let's talk about the catcher. Um, the catcher is responsible for communicating to the pitcher and the infielders directly. Uh, he's not going to be screaming to the outfielders because obviously we have infielders for that, but he needs to know the base runners, the hitters, where the infielder should be. Um, he's kind of the coach on the field. So the catcher is going to be the coach on the field. This is a lot of times the coach is going to relay information to the catcher. And we have to also understand, you know, the, the game situations to communicate. So um, when I was in college, we had our third baseman communicate some of these plays, but the majority of coaches are going to have the catcher communicate all of these. Um, unless the coach, you know, obviously does a, a number system first and third plays um, or something like that. But you're going to know bunt rotations, first and thirds, pickoffs, and potential plays at the plate before they occur. Runner on second base, you know, two outs in an inning, one run ball game where the, the third base coach is going to run a guy. You know, the catcher has to know all of those situations. Depending on the team, he might have to also be the guy that's calling the game too. You know, so obviously the catcher has his work cut out for him as he goes. Um, you know, but it's very, very important to understand, you know, what the catcher's job is. Next one is the shortstop. So the shortstop is responsible for communicating to the third baseman, second baseman, and outfielder, center fielder. Um, he's the captain. So we've got, you know, the, the catcher's the coach and the shortstop's the captain. So they work directly together. So the shortstop must communicate uh, the message from the catcher to all positions mentioned. So third, you know, second, center field. Captain of the infield to keep everybody on the same page. Uh, and the main communication should include what the catcher's message is, where to go with the ball based on the game situation and potential pickoffs and other plays being put on. Um, you know, so the catcher and the shortstop are going to direct work directly with each other um, a lot to make sure that they can actually keep the, the overall group of, of teammates that are actually out there on defense communicating properly. So uh, as coaches, you know, your catcher and your shortstop need to be your vocal leaders the majority of the time. Um, those are going to be the guys that are going to manage and, and man everything that you guys are doing. So it's really important to make sure that those two are, you know, obviously on the same page. Uh, center field is responsible for communicating to the left fielder and the right fielder. Um, and then they're going to communicate the message from the shortstop to all the outfielders uh, and make, make sure all players are aware of where to go with the ball on the ground or in the air. So a lot of times, you know, what you'll hear the center fielder yell is, you know, shooting four on the ground, two in the air. Um, you know, it's something very simple like that. You know, hey, guys, hey, on the ground, we're shooting four, on the ground, we're shooting four. Or, hey, we got, you know, we got two outs, you know, on the ground, shooting four, um, or on the ground, shooting two. You know, those are things that the outfielder is going to relay consistently. Um, but based on these three that we've mentioned, you're pretty much going directly up the center of the field, uh, catcher, shortstop, center field. Those are going to be your, your coach, captain, um, you know, and then the outfielder, the center fielder is the outfield captain that's relaying a lot of those in for that information. So it's very important to make sure that these three players are on the same page at all times. Um, I vividly remember being in college and having conversations with our catcher and center fielder during games to make sure we were on the same page. It's something that I learned in high school and, and something that I think that as coaches, we can teach all of our players to say, hey, listen, 
you know, you're playing shortstop, your job is to be the guy that's over communicating every single thing that's coming from the catcher and some things that I, as the shortstop, am seeing. And then I'm going to relay that to the rest of the people. So it's very important to make sure that those guys are communicating and keeps the flow of the game, you know, obviously very simple. Um, over communication is extremely important. I'd rather over communicate than under communicate, obviously, as mentioned before. Um, a team that talks is normally a team that wins. The team that's engaged the most is normally a team that's there at the end. Um, the more prepared you are pre-pitch, the less variables you have to consider post-pitch. So we're looking to make sure that we are prepared, not surprised. Uh, and I think that's extremely important to actually understand kind of as we go. So, you know, I know this is a lot to take in right now from a, you know, communication and defensive perspective, not talking about fundamental defense, turning double plays, bunt plays and things like that, but strictly preparation and communication as a main factor of how we're going to play clean defense, I think is extremely important. And that goes into how do we practice? So when we're practicing, we're not always just practicing ground balls. We're practicing game situations and where we're explaining to our players on actually how to communicate throughout the course of the game to make sure that they're aware of what's going to happen, um, you know, as the game kind of goes on. So I think it's extremely important to understand that. Fly ball communication. So proper defensive plays, fly ball communication. Long story short, basically, we always say that outfielders are saying mine, mine, mine. Infielders are saying ball, ball, ball. Now, the reason why we change that is so that there's no misinformation on who's calling it. Every single coach is going to have a different way of explaining it. This is just the way that I'm explaining it here for right now. Um, we really want to make sure that we're differentiating who's saying mine and ball. The reason why we say that is because outfielders have precedence over infielders, shortstops, shortstops have precedence over the infield. So we want to make sure that if we hear mine, mine, mine as an infielder, we are moving out of the way and letting the outfielders call the baseball. But if it's a ball, 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 and the infielders are calling it, you know it's a shortstop's voice. You're getting out of the way if you're the rest of the infield because the shortstop's calling it. But it's very, very, very important to understand that we want to separate those types of things. So obviously, why is it important? You know, we, we know why it's important. It's important because we want to make sure that we're knowing he's calling it. This breakdown here, if you guys are watching this, the breakdown here is, is exactly, you know, who has precedence throughout the course of the entire game. So obviously uh, on five balls, center field has precedence over everybody. Then it's the corner outfielders, shortstop, second base, corner infielders, catcher, pitcher. So we basically never want to let the pitcher catch the ball. Primarily, we never want to let the catcher catch the ball if we don't have to. And then obviously we, if we can get in the shortstop's hands or the center fielder's hands, that's obviously ideal. So a lot of times in games, what happens is, is it, corner outfielders and corner infielders get frustrated when the center fielder or the shortstop, you know, calls for the ball and kind of goes in their territory and catches it. But that's where the, the rule of baseball comes in, where we want to make sure that those are the guys that are handling the baseball. At the end of the day, the shortstop, we want him to have the ball the majority of the time because we're putting him in that position to be the most athletic infielder out there. That's the guy that can make the most plays. So we want the ball in his hands as often as possible. And that same thing goes for the center fielder as well. So we basically want to make sure that those are the guys that, you know, have the baseball more often. So if they call the baseball, it's their ball. Um, and understanding that order is very important. I think that's elementary, but depending on, you know, what coaches are coaching at what levels, or even if you're a coach in here, that this is your first time coaching baseball, it's very important to understand that those are basically the rules of who has precedence on fly balls, which, which I think is, is extremely, extremely important. Um, Double play communication. A lot of times uh, guys don't communicate on double plays. 
Uh, I really learned this for the first time when I got to college on how to communicate a double play on what I was going to do. Even the guy that's fielding the ground ball should be communicating to the guy I'm throwing to on what way I'm throwing. For example, if I'm a middle infielder, I'm either saying flip or throw, flip or feed, you know, whatever you guys want to use. But if I'm flipping the ball, I want to make sure that the second baseman or shortstop that's catching the ball understands that it's coming from underhand, not overhand. If I'm going to throw it or feed it, I want to make sure I tell him that so that he knows where the ball is coming from. So he's not surprised on where that throw is. So he's not looking for the balls that's on its way. Um, I know that for us, this allowed us to, to turn way more double plays as we went. Um, you know, and that communication was very important. And it's kind of the same thing as, as calling from the outfield. You want to be loud. You want to say it multiple times to make sure that that infielder that's catching the baseball knows exactly how that ball is coming to him. So always communicate it very loud. And that's going to allow us to have, you know, we're not going to miscommunicate and make mistakes that way because at least the other guy knows where the ball is coming from. The first pace and in the, in the, the first baseman and the pitcher should always communicate by saying, um, you know, I've got bag or cover, cover, cover. So a first baseman is going to be the one that, you know, is, is going to communicate to the pitcher. The pitcher's job is obviously to get over, um, you know, but the first baseman is always going to communicate with the pitcher on, on whether he's going to be able to get back to the bag or not. Um, and I think that's very important because the pitcher's job is obviously to get there, um, you know, but we also want to make sure that the first baseman, if he can, if he can get back to the bag, we want him to handle the baseball over the pitcher for sure. Um, catcher and pitcher should communicate pre-pitch. Um, on if the catcher's backing up first on a potential double play ball. So for example, um, you know, the catcher's going to say, Hey, you know, I got you, I'm going to be back up. Um, or like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to get there, you know, or, or depending on who's covering, you know, the plate or whatever the case is, you, know, you always want to make sure that you're communicating pre-pitch to make sure that those things are happening. So um, I know it's extremely important to over communicate, like we mentioned before, but understanding what we're communicating is also extremely important. All right, cutoff and relay communication. Catcher, shortstop, and third base are the most com are most commonly responsible for initiating cutoff communication. So, shortstop knows everything that's happening, obviously, and same with the catcher. Um, but the third baseman is involved in the majority of cutoff plays, so that's the reason why they're in there. Obviously, the first baseman can be involved in in cutoff plays, depending on you know what type of you know scheme you guys are using. So, for example, the third baseman primarily would take the throw from the left fielder to the center fielder, and the first baseman would primarily take the throw from the right fielder. There's some teams and coaches that will allow the third baseman to take all of it. There's some teams that allow the first baseman to take right and center field. Just depends on you know what you guys are comfortable with. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, the catcher, the shortstop, and the third baseman are going to be the ones that most commonly are used. So those are going to be the ones that are going to, uh, you know, communicate the best. The biggest thing is making sure that we're lining up our players um, on the direction, the step number to know exactly where they're supposed to be. You know, like two left, two right. You're good. You're good. You're good. Um, get deeper, get deeper, get out there a little bit more. Those are things that we can always talk about, um, you know, as we're doing cutoff plays. Uh, it's very important to understand what our outfield arms are and the depth of the fly bar or line drive that was hit to make sure that we know exactly, you know, for example, if a left fielder, let's say, doesn't have the strongest arm, the shortstop may tend to get out into the outfield a bit more than, you know, if the guy has a cannon. If the guy has a hose, we might be able to actually stay back just a little bit more and let the arm travel. 
um, or let the throw travel a little bit. But it's very important for the guy that's taking that, that's catching at the bag to actually line them up, which obviously is, is very important. But having a, a very, very distinct way to move them, I think, is big. Um, you know, left two, right one. That's the way we always say instead of saying left, 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 they don't know how far to go left um, or right, 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 right. We don't know how far to go right. So it's very important to understand that we tell them how far we want them to go. Um, and then communicating the cut. This is the way that I've always done it. Um, we, you guys can change it any way that you want to, but no words is no cut. So if I don't say anything, you're not cutting the ball, but that cutoff man is always going to fake to the backside bag. So for example, again, guy hits a double in the gap, plays at home. We call for a no cut. That third baseman is going to fake cut and act like he's going to throw to second base. Who knows? It might hold the guy up and keep him at first. Who knows? Um, if we call cut, you're doing cut and hold. So if I say cut, 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 you're cutting and holding it. If I say cut four, you're going to cut and throw that base. Uh, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. So again, just to recap that no words is no cut, cut equals cut and hold. And then cut to the base is, you know, cut two, cut four, cut three. Um, this can also be a way for you to back pick guys. Another example, same thing, guy on second base, ball hitting the gap. We know that the guy's going to, you know, score. So we say cut two really quick. So the cutoff man can snap throw to second base really fast. But I think having, again, having very distinct ways for us to actually manage and coach that is very important. So making sure that, you know, we tell our team like no words is no cut. And that's the way that we do it. So if you say anything, just expect for the ball to be cut. Um, I think is a way to do it. So we don't want to keep uh, our players confused as to what they're trying to do. And the challenge that we have as high school coaches is, their travel teams or another team that they play on or their house program or whatever it is, you know, they might have a different way to actually coach it, but actually taking the time and practice to teach them exactly what your expectations are, you know, for the high school season, I think is extremely important. And I think that's a way for, you know, us to actually get the most out of our kids and, and our team and, and get them to actually make the best plays that we possibly can. All right. Let me move some things around here really quick. Give me one second. All right. Factors and influence where we're throwing. So, you know, there's a lot of different places that we can go with the baseball, um, you know, whenever we throw. So the big seven are outs, base runners, score, innings, the runner speed, ball direction, and ball speed. So I know I mentioned a bit of this a little bit earlier, um, but the number of outs is going to be the biggest factor in determining where to throw the baseball and what to do with it. Um, and I think the, the score of the game is also going to play in this a little bit, um, you know, just because if, if we're up by a lot, you know, we can tend to we can tend to throw into the cutoff man instead of actually throwing home, which, you know, we all know that. But the number of outs is going to be the biggest factor. And then knowing the base runners, like where are they and, and how quick are they, I think is very important. And that's a lot of the communication from the coach, because the coach probably knows a lot of those players more than you know the players on the team know you know so understanding where the base runners are i think is, is very important in who's running um the score is going to dictate it you know because if you're up by a lot or down by a lot you know you may have a different scheme but if, if you're in a tight ball game you know you might do a do or die play at home to try and cut the run down or you might play it safe and allow the run to score to try and get the backside guy out um the innings are very important the first half of the game uh you know, we can be a little bit, you know, more lenient on what we're doing, but late in the game, we might have to be more tight and go for that do or die play. 
I already mentioned runner speed. Ball direction is obviously very important. Where's the ball hit and what players are playing out there and what can they do with what they have? You got a guy in right field with a cannon, you might want to let him let it fly to try and get it out at home. Um, and the ball speed. So the ball speed's big. How hard was the ball hit? If the ball's absolutely smoked, it's going to take time for those runners to get around base. If the ball's kind of floating to the outfield, it finds a nice, decent hole. Um, you know, we, they might be running forever. So, you know, it's really important to understand all of those seven factors and then use that to be able to actually, you know, relay that to the rest of your team to know what we're doing in what situations, um, you know, based on those things. All right. Breaking down each factor. So let's go through the outs. No outs. The primary goal is to get the lead runner. The secondary goal is to get an out and minimize the big inning, right? So for example, balls hitting the gap with runner in scoring position. We already know that guy might score. Uh, if we can't get the lead runner, we're trying to just get an out anywhere. We're trying to either keep a guy at first base and give ourselves a chance to turn a double play, um, you know, or we're trying to get an out somewhere and throw like out at second base. Um, same thing with one out, you know, typically that's going to be the same thing. And the two outs, the primary goal is to get an out. And the secondary goals, we're trying to limit the amount of runs we're giving up and we're limiting the amount of doubles we're giving up. So we're trying to corner people into actually keeping guys at first base because that might set up a double play situation. Base runners, um, we're trying to figure out exactly where they are and what they've earned. So, you know, guy on first base, ball's hitting the gap. You know, you can automatically assume that he's at least going to get to third, um, you know, but he might score depending on how fast we get to it and who's playing the outfield. So understanding how to set up your relays based on that is, is extremely important. Um, you know, and, and obviously in double cut situations, the majority of the time we're either going to, to sack to, to third or, or home. So I want to make sure that we actually line people up properly there. All right, score. So this is an example here. Uh, if you're tied up, up one or down one early innings, um, you're approaching it like you're down two, two plus runs to limit the potential inning. Uh, but in the late innings, you're not allowing the run to score. Um, you know, so obviously you guys can use this if you like, but it's really important to understand that when we're in a close game early in the game, all we're trying to do is limit them having a huge inning because big innings often lead to wins. Um, normally the team that has the biggest inning is the team that wins. So we want to make sure that we're limiting that. And then in the late innings, if we're in a tight game, we cannot let that run score. So basically you're going to push your corner infielders towards the line a little bit more to limit the doubles. Um, you're going to push the outfielders back just a little bit more so that we're not giving up as many, um, you know, big plays behind us, but we're going to, you know, primarily allow the ball to be in front of us the majority of the time. So if it drops in for a bloop single, there's nothing we can do. Um, and as for the up to down to, you know, again, early, we're trying to limit the big inning, but late, um, you know, we're trying to, to basically limit the big inning by getting sure outs. So that's where we might primarily play in a no double situation. Um, to allow us to maybe give up one run, but not allow them to kind of start scoring and get back in the game. Innings are obviously very important, um, but I mentioned the majority of the reason why the innings important based on the other three. So I'm going to move on. All right, runner speed. That's going to determine the infield depth. That's also going to determine the outfield depth at some point. Right. Infield depth is very important for runner speed, because if you got a guy who's a burner, we may play corners in. We may even play the infield in a step or two just to make sure we can get that out. Um, you know, so that's why it's really important to understand like, who's running. You know, we can't just always assume that a leadoff guy is going to be the fastest guy on the field. 
Um, there's times that your seven, eight, nine guys are really quick. There's times that your four hitters, you know, hits bombs and runs really fast. That's, that's part of it. So um, understanding how fast the runners are and where they are on the field. So runner on second base, you know, blue pit single to center. We're not even going to throw it home. You know, he's going to score. So let's get the ball into second base and, and not let anybody take any extra bases and keep that guy on first. Um, you know, those are some scenarios and situations that's really important to understand how fast guys are. Uh, ball direction is, is obviously super important. Uh, for example, let's take a guy on first base and a ball hits the outfield. If the ball's hit to left for a single, you know, we can cut and go to three because we know that the ball's in front of that base runner. So we're probably going to keep him at second base. But if it's first and third and the ball's hit to right field, you know, that guy that's running the second might turn and go to third base. You know, so depending on how fast he is, I know we mentioned runner speed, but depending on how fast he is, we may want to just cut the second base and let him go to third or leave the double play open um, instead of trying to throw all the way through to third base and get the out. And if he's safe, we might end up in a second and third scenario instead of a first and third scenario. So understanding the ball direction, who's running and things like that, I think are very important again. And then the ball speed. Um, you know, fast balls, uh, fast ball speed leaves more time to set and make a throw and, and not give the base runners as much time to run. Um, but slow ball speed leaves us less time to make a throw. So we actually have to get the ball and get rid of it, you know, because they're going to run all over the place. So I know I, I, I mentioned that a little bit before. I think the cool thing about this little presentation here is that you guys can actually see, um, you know, in the video when you guys watch it exactly what this looks like, um, you know, so you guys can take pictures of it, screenshot it, use it for whatever you guys need. All right, heat zones by infield positions. I want to bring this up as a cool little break. Um, you know, we talked a lot about like the defense depth and things like that. I think the really cool thing about playing an infield position specifically is, is teaching and allowing our athletes to be athletes, allowing them to make plays from athletic positions and throws from athletic positions. You know, I think we kind of have to go away from this idea of, you know, field it, throw from over the top, make sure you take a shuffle, you know, high level, any type of high level player, whether that's travel, high school, college, professional, major leagues, doesn't matter, are going to make the most athletic plays. So the one cool thing that you see on this, this heat map here, this is from 2018, um, and all ground balls hit to Nolan Arenado and Andrelton Simmons. Andrelton Simmons, one of my favorite infielders. But if you watch these guys field, that's their range. These are all the plays that these guys are making. Um, and they're throwing a lot of these balls from on the run. And so I think it's really important to, to get, even if we get a little bit away from the communication and, and the team defensive side of things, allow your athletes to be athletes. And so after they communicate and after they know where they're going with the ball, when it actually comes to the actual skill part of the game, allow them to be athletic and allow them to make a cool play. Um, but it doesn't happen just by going to the games. We have to start to implement this kind of stuff in practice too. So, you know, we used to always do web gem day um, or web gem hour or whatever, where we would allow ourselves to make diving plays and make throws or make some Jeter plays or throw on the run or do some really cool things to, you know, let us be athletic and make athletic plays and, and play the game without fear. And I think that's a really massive thing to teach our kids in practice is to allow them to make plays at different positions where they're uncomfortable and they have to figure out a way to have that internal clock to get rid of the baseball fast enough to get it to first base. That's what's going to make them better. It's going to make your team better. And it's going to allow them to make really cool plays, um, you know, where you're going to save some runs or save some base runners instead of forcing them to get set, make a good throw, 
and the guy's just safe. So I think there does come a time where we have to be a little bit more free with them and allow them to make those plays. But just to break away from all the written stuff, I wanted to kind of show this um, and show you guys some of the best to, you know, ever play their positions um, and kind of what they're doing to, to be successful. And there's, there's a lot of different plays here, um, you know, but they allow themselves to be athletic. And I think that's a really, really big piece to it. All right, fielders tools for the toolbox. Very, very, very important. Um, let's do the throwing tasks. So field and throw. Obviously, you're seeing a really good position here. Um, but let's go field throw. So that's what we primarily teach as a typical mechanical way to teach infield. Um, you know, but that's not always going to be the easiest way to field ground balls, especially on some of the dirt fields we play. Relay throws. Obviously, that's a throwing task that infielders have. Uh, the dive pop up and throw. Cool web gem play. Um, the on the run throws, which obviously are very important. Uh, the inside toss and the option toss. So on days that you're going to primarily do more throwing work, these are the things that you want to incorporate into your, your throwing practice. Regular fielding and throwing, have them do relays, do some dive and pop-ups, um, throw on the run, and then have your middle infielders and your first baseman, even if you want to use your third baseman in this, doing some inside tosses and some option tosses. So on throwing days, that's what we're doing. We can also incorporate some of that into the receiving tasks, which you see on the right-hand side here. Um, your first baseman, obviously, are doing stretches and picks. You know, you got your relays. Um, you got your right turn redirect, so that's on double plays. You got your inside turn redirect, and that's your shortstops. And then you got your tags. So if you want to primarily do some receiving stuff, so let's say your catchers are doing receiving that day and you want to do more receiving with your defensive stuff, you know, these are the things that you can incorporate into your defensive receiving tasks. That's what you want to in include. Um, throwing, tar throwing slots. We do want to teach all of our infielders to throw from different slots. Um, you know, so going off of the throwing task stuff, you know, we want to make sure that we're actually teaching them that they can throw from different places. Um, the one thing that I hear a lot of times from high school coaches is we don't want to teach our kids to throw sidearm. If you look at the bottom left here on the throwing slots, all of these guys are tilting their shoulders based on where they're throwing the baseball. You know, so they're allowing themselves to actually throw from different arm slots as their body is adapting athletically to where that ground ball was hit. Um, and we want to make sure that we're allowing them to make those plays. So the web gems that I mentioned earlier is something that's very important that we want to also incorporate into this as well. And then the last thing is, um, you know, the tempo of the game. So this is where the internal clock comes in that I briefly mentioned before. Uh, the internal clock is extremely, extremely important. So a guy that's a sub four, three from home to first base, a stopwatch can find this information out for you. It basically has to be a, a catch and throw. Um, so you want to catch step once or twice and get rid of it. A guy who's yellow is going to be a four, three to four, six home to first. Um, that's going to be a, a catch and throw, but you can take two to four shuffles depending on, you know, how strong the arm is. And then a guy who's a four, six and slower, you know, you can take a bunch of shuffles to be able to get rid of that baseball. Um, so make sure that you actually have it. I would primarily train our team to be under the 4.3. I know whenever I was in school, we try to be under a 4.0. If we were under a 4.0, we did really well. Um, you know, so we basically want to use a stopwatch on every type of competitive ground ball stuff that we're doing to allow our defenses to work quicker and teach them the internal clock that's going to allow them to play at game speed um, because every single level of baseball gets faster. So the more we can get them to actually limit how long it takes them to actually make a play, I think is, is very big. An easy way to do this is to take your entire team, put them at home plate, let them sprint home to first, put their times down, 
um, and do an average for your team. So you kind of know where your team speed is and then allow that to be the way that it drives you in defense. So we would take our fastest runner who at the time was like a three, nine, five home to first, which is really, really fast. And then we would try to do all of our plays in that, that amount of time. So anything sub four was pretty good. Um, so those are cool things that you can add into practice competitively to allow them to work a little bit quicker. All right here. All right, so what you guys are gonna see here now is some relay plays. So we actually wrote up a bunch of relay stuff on where every single player should go. And I, I think it's really, really important to actually put this in there. Um, so fly ball is a left field. If you look in the very top of here, it says, you know, you got runners on second, first and second, second and third are bases loaded. So any of these scenarios or situations are, are very important as long as, you know, so any situation that you guys have here, um, you know, this is kind of what the movement's gonna be like. So. A fly ball hits a left field in this scenario. Um, obviously, the catcher's going to be at home. The pitcher's going to back up home plate. The third baseman is going to be the cutoff man. Um, the shortstop is going to go to the third base bag. Second base is going to go to second base. First base is going to crash in as if he's starting to go towards the, the first baseline. Um, the right fielder is going to work towards second base. And then the center fielder is going to work towards the fly ball first and then back in kind of towards second base just in case of some type of bad throw. So as we mentioned before about everybody moving, this is one of those pieces that you can actually use to allow guys to move. And then a fly ball hit the center or right field. Um, it'll switch up just slightly where, you know, the, the first baseman will become the cutoff man. Um, the second baseman will cover first. The pitcher will still cover behind the plate. The shortstop will now go to second base. Uh, the third baseman will go to third. And then the left fielder will actually go in behind third base. So if any of you guys have any questions about this defensive alignment, um, I know I'm talking through it, but you can check out the arrows. I think it makes it pretty self-explanatory. Um, but the people that are actually listening in on this, I think it's important to actually explain all that kind of stuff. All right, let me get all these ones up here. Cool. All right. Run on first base and anywhere else. Sure double to left, left field or left center and sure double to right field and right center. Um, you know, where are we going with the baseball? So what you're going to see here is that you're going to double cut this where the second baseman and the shortstop are going to go out for a double cut. The first baseman is going to go with the trail runner to second. The right fielder is actually going to come into the infield just in case of any type of uh, a rundown situation where a guy falls, gets up, and has to go back to a base or something like that. Um, and then the pitcher is, is actually going to go um, depending on where the base, if the base runner is at first, he might hover between third base and then go to home if he can see that that play is going to happen at home. Um, and then the only other thing that's going to happen differently on the right side is that everybody's going to shift over right instead. So, you know, in this scenario, you may, depending on, you know, the team that you have, you may have your first baseman be the double cut backup, um, or you may have the shortstop be your double cut backup in the first baseman trail runner to second base. That's a variable that's completely up to you guys. Um, you know, but I thought it was really important to actually note that there are some variables to that one. Uh, just to, depending on how you how athletic your first baseman is. All right, let's go into some bunt rotations. These are the most commonly used rotations, but you know, obviously, baseball is a variable sport. There's nothing that's set in stone, so so you guys can adjust this and change this anytime that you want. So bunt plays, for example, run on first or first and third. Um, you know, primarily the first baseman is going to stay back. And the third baseman is going to crash. Um, you know, it could be a wheel play um, if you want to call it a wheel play. Uh, you know, but the third baseman is going to crash. Shortstop is going to go to third. Second base to second. First base stays home. 
it's very, very important to understand the pitcher is going to cover the first base side here. Um, I know a lot of times pitchers get caught in la la land. You want to make sure that they know exactly where they're going. Um, the other, the, the second bun play that's on here is a first base crash. Um, so that's just going to work the exact opposite where the shortstop is going to go to second, second's going to go to first, first is going to crash, and then the third base or the pitcher has to cover the third base side. And then you have a full crash play. Um, this is either going to be a bases loaded squeeze um, situation, and you're going to have the middle infielders go to the corner bases, so first and third, and everybody else is crashing and trying to make sure we cut down that run if we can. Um, you know, so these are just very typical generic bun plays. You know, you guys can, you know, screenshot this and use this for your bun plays if you want. These are very generic. If you have any other creative ways to add more, you know, feel free. But, you know, we kind of just wanted to throw this out there and give you guys some for sure. All right. I'm going to open this up now for anybody else that has any questions. I know that was a lot of information. Okay. So I know that there was a lot of info on here. Um, you know, I highly, highly recommend anybody listening into this today and, and even in the next few weeks to actually watch the entire thing because that presentation um, and everything that I said is, is, is on that presentation. So you can actually see it in depth on exactly what we're trying to do and, and some of the different defensive schemes that you guys can implement on your team. My hope is that this is all stuff that you guys are already doing. Um, if there is anything new on there and you guys want some more of that information, please ask, you know, I'm more than happy to send you guys some stuff. Um, you know, but I wanted to get through some team defensive stuff and actually talk about that, try to get through everything I could today as, as best I could. But again, if there's anything else that we can add to, you know, your toolbox, your playbook that you guys need, please let us know. Um, you know, but that stuff is all in the dugout coalition certification, uh, coaches certification, um, you know, so just so everybody knows who's in here, we are giving away, um, you know, dugout coalition, like coaches certifications for free to anybody who's interested that's listening to these that's in the section six um, coaches clinic. So anybody that wants to get certified through dugout coalition, it will cost you nothing. Um, so some stuff that you guys just saw today is a lot of what that content is. So anybody that's interested in taking that certification, please let me know. Um, we can get you guys hooked up with that, you know, as soon as possible. It's a full donation from Dugout Coalition to help out Section 6, something that we're super interested in doing. Uh, we just want to educate everybody that we can. But again, you guys just saw one presentation in the team defense. We have stuff like that throughout the course of the entire certification. So we'd love to have you guys take it. Again, it's completely free for you guys. Um, we normally charge 600 bucks for it, but for Dugout Coalition, they, they want to just give it away, um, which I think is really cool. So I'm really happy that they're partnered with us to be able to do this. Um, but last thing is, is, you know, with the team defense stuff, go through it, screenshot it, print it out, um, use that for your team defensive stuff. So you can actually give that to your players. My recommendation is to actually allow your players to, to read through this kind of stuff. So they know exactly what's expected when, when the game times, uh, you know, roll around. So if no one has anything else to, to add or have any questions. I really appreciate whoever's going to be listening to this, um, you know, in the next few weeks and everybody that jumped on here today. Uh, if that's it, then we're good. Uh, and we'll see you guys in two weeks.